You're listening to a special addendum episode of the Comics Pals, episode 144. Uh, we are actually here with a special guest. This is an interview that we wanted to do, despite the fact that it's such a packed week of news and things like that. We wanted to make sure we got it done, so we're presenting this here for you guys as a separate piece of content. Uh, we are actually here with Philip Sevy. So you guys... <laughs> Yes, get the big round of applause in. Thanks. There can only be one. There can only be one. <laughs> Next time we're together, we'll have our Highlander fight, Phil. <laughs> you better believe Yo, it. If there can only be one, can you please leave, Phil Casey? <laughs> I don't... <laughs> so, uh, Phil, the good Phil, <laughs> has worked on uh, several titles. Uh, he's worked on The Freeze. Uh, he's worked on The House, which you actually wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, he's worked on Tomb Raider, and then you've got a brand new book coming out called Triage, um, that's coming out through Dark Horse. It is, yeah. Yeah, so really exciting stuff. I'm actually, I want to jump out of the gate and sure. ask you about Triage, because I've seen some of the stuff that you put out so far, some of the, the teaser images, mm-hmm. and it looks so awesome. Oh, so, yeah, I was hoping you could just tell us what it's about because I can't tell what it's about, but I love what, I see, what I've seen. So if you could just give us a little bit, you know, some morsels to tide us over. Sure, sure. Let me uh, let me do this. So we, I made little trading cards. Oh, my God. Oh, man. These are Whoa. awesome. And they're also 90s style, so we've got, like, power ratings <laughs> yes. and stuff. Oh, my Yo. God. Just send me your addresses after the show. I'll send you a bunch of them. Oh, hell uh, yeah. Please oh do. That's yes. so cool. Yeah, Thank so uh, I use those to pitch it now that I have them. I've been giving them to comic stores as kind of like promotional things. But anyway, so Triage follows our main character, Evie Pierce. Um, Evie is a nurse. She's gotten to the point in her life and career where she's done everything she wants to do. She's checked off all the goals. And when she gets to that point, she realizes maybe that's not what I wanted to do at all. Like, I'm not happy. This doesn't fulfill me in any way. So she kind of has like a, an identity crisis trying to figure out who she is and where she belongs. Um, in the middle of that, she wakes up in this crazy Ditko-esque uh, landscape of like crazy psychedelic space. I mean, she's alongside two people. One is a sassy superhero named Orbit, and the other is this battle-hardened post-apocalyptic warrior named Marco. Hey! <laughs> hey! How's it going? Hey! Go, That's right, y'all. Exactly. My first there ever are two appearance. Words I would use to describe Marco. They would definitely be uh, battle hardened. And... <laughs> <laughs> um, oh my gosh! So the three of them find out that they are they're being hunted by a character whose name is Hunter. This little <laughs> character there. Um, if Hunter kills all three of them, all existence ends. Um, it ceases to be. Well, so yeah, little little high stakes there. So they have to figure out um, who they are in relation to each other, why they're so important, and then basically how to survive. Uh, and that kind of kicks off this crazy sci-fi action adventure epic that uh, is all sorts of craziness and fun. And it's a five issue miniseries. The first issue will be out September fourth from Dark Horse. Phil, uh, Phil with the Comics Pals Free Press, first row here. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um. I really like this presentation holding trading cards up as like a visual aid. It's a lot better than a PowerPoint. Is this the first time you've done that? Um, so I brought these cards to San Diego Comic-Con last week, and that was the first time I was able to kind of use them face-to-face with people. So as people would ask me about the book, I was like, oh, I've just got these things right here. And it became a quick little 
trading card demonstration, kind of like a a bad magician. So, <laughs> <laughs> good Phil, bad magician. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, I I really like everything about what you said, how you broke it down. This book sounds like it's going to be awesome. And one thing that I really like about what you had to say is how high stakes it sounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really enjoy books that feel like things immediately matter. Yeah. And so you're kind of dropping us. I mean, this is so intelligent. You're dropping us right in the middle of it. And you're saying, okay, this is how big it's going to get. Like, this is what's on the line, the world, the the, the reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and here are the players who can stop the end of reality from happening. And I, I just, I love that. So I can't wait for this. Thank you. Yeah, the book is kind of, uh, people ask kind of like where it came from, and there's there's quite a few different answers to that. Um, but mainly it's like my love of like psychotic 90s comics. Like if you've ever <laughs> read like 90s X-Men, like nice. they're just the craziest things in the world. And I absolutely <sighs> yeah. love them. Like the stakes are insane. The backstories of the characters, you've got multiple realities and time travels and all sorts of stuff that as a kid, like it was just like crack for a kid. Like it was so exciting to be like, Oh my gosh, Cable is, you know, Scott and Jean, or not Scott, Scott and Madeline's son, and Madeline's a clone of Jean, and like, you just go through these crazy rabbit holes where all this insanity works together. And I can't say it's 100% like time-traveling X-Men, but I wanted to elicit that feeling of reading a comic that's so 100% comic, and is so exciting, and so crazy, uh, and then takes all sorts of big leaps and big risks, and tries to do a lot in a short amount of time, and that's kind of some of my goals for the series with it. That's awesome. It's where, uh, yeah. where sci-fi meets soap opera. Exactly. Yes. That my is, favorite. Yeah. That's 100% yeah, where sci-fi meets soap opera is where I live. So. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so is Marco, apparently. <laughs> <that's>, <laughs> yeah, definitely, man. Just got to start it, wearing your, uh, your, your gas mask here. Get up close on. <laughs> Can we zoom in? It's not going to focus that close. Big ass gun and a gas mask. So... <laughs> Marco, go ahead. and with that, uh, yeah, I was I was gonna say Marco being as action packed and violent as she is. Um, what were some of the uh, ideas behind each of these characters, uh, specifically Marco? If you could <laughs> yeah, start so I mean, before character. I pitched the series, there's a couple. There was a couple different kind of genres I wanted to work in that I hadn't had a chance, and one of them was superhero um, and big sci-fi soap opera, and then like I love post-apocalyptic type stuff. Um, and as I was coming up with a pitch, I found a way to marry multiple genres together into one story. Um, and, you know, we're, we're exploring kind of the thematic and narrative idea of of how we see ourselves, how we define ourselves, and then how we measure ourselves against others. Because, um, you know, Evie's a nurse and she's going through an identity crisis. And then she's suddenly alongside like two larger than life comic book figures, essentially. And she's trying to figure out, like, what do I have to bring to this? Why am I important? And. And just, you know, I, I like that idea of what we, how, how is it that we define ourselves and how, how do we define success and, and how do we measure up against each other? So both Marco and Orbit are different aspects of that idea and how they present themselves and how they feel about themselves and kind of what it is they do that allows them their identity. Yeah, and um, Definitely to what you said with respect to it having all these different elements because uh, Orbit is very much the superhero as character, yeah. the superhero character. Um, Marco is that sci-fi hardened veteran, you know, and um, Evie's just in the middle of this as one would be in a post-apocalyptic situation. You're just kind of 
rolling with the punches, going through it and living these experiences. And it's awesome the way you bring these uh, elements together in one place, right? And it's this mix of sci-fi world um, meets superhero meets post-apocalyptism, which is awesome. And oh, thank you. Everything that's, that I'm here I'm for. I'm glad it's connecting with others too, so. <laughs> and curious, because uh, I was able to read the, the mm-hmm. first two issues. You did share those with us. Um, and I'm interested, Do are we going to be able to get to see some of these other worlds and how these characters interact within them? Uh, I know we're sort of following Evie's, or not Evie's necessarily, but mm-hmm. uh, Evie as our focus point. Are we going to follow these characters through sure, those different elements Sure, and I'm going to say yes, worlds? but I won't get into too much more because I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to no, spoil no, totally, where totally. and, and how things tie in. But yeah, it, it bounces around a little bit more than just the first two issues. So Awesome. Where, where's your inspiration come from for this? You mentioned this is like a pure super heroic journey, pure comic books rather. Yeah. Where does this come from in your head? Yeah, I mean, so it's combining those elements and kind of my love of, of what made me get into comics as a kid, like what made me excited and what made me kind of like a devotee. And obviously I'm, I'm emulating things like 90s trading cards in my promotional. Um, the, the second half to kind of where it comes from are just a couple of different Um, experiences in my life. Like I got an undergraduate degree in corporate finance. I worked for Goldman Sachs for a couple of years. I was in a completely different career and line of work. And it was another one of those, like, you know, I went to a really good business school and I got a job at a top firm and things like that. And then, and when I got to that point in my mid twenties, I was like, I'm so miserable. This is just not what I want to do. And I hate everything about it. And, but like, how do I, how do I pivot from here? I feel like my whole life is mapped out in front of me. Um, and the pivot and breakaway into comics was was a really difficult one. And it, you know, set me back years and years on the like, you know, life scale um, to kind of like get back to where I was and in a place of security. But it was like that big shift of of losing your identity and trying to discover who it is. Um, and a couple other instances, I grew up, you know, extremely religious and over the last few years have very much kind of parted ways with that. So it's another loss of identity and a redefinition of who self mm. is. And if you have worth in the world, because everything you had defined what made you a worthy person, now you're no longer in your life. So some of those kind of thematic and personal elements are things that I brought into the character of Evie and into the situation of the story. So again, like you totally pointed out, it's sci-fi and soap opera. It's I had to have elements that were both um, really fantastic and really exciting and things that, that clicked with me on a human level that keeps me working on this day in and day out for the better part of coming up on like nine, 10 months now I've been working on the project. So, yeah, I love, I love the idea of her journey kind of mirroring your own, because not only did you, you know, like leave that world that you weren't satisfied with to go and like, you know, try to find what was next for you. Mm -hmm. But the idea that you went and did it in comics and then (laughs) she's kind of doing it by not, breaking into comics by interacting with these like very comic booky figures of a superhero yeah. <laughs> and a post-apocalyptic war veteran, you know, where like, she's just a nurse. She's just a regular person, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that that's really clever. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I, I you know, I, I try to find things and stories that I tell that I connect with and then I can I- identify and empathize with and then kind of let them go from there on their own like evie is not necessarily me but at the same time there's things that i feel like we that i connect with her journey and i can draw from personal experiences so i hope other people are able to connect that same way as they read the story so go ahead i'm sorry i was just gonna say i'm uh, you mentioned sort of your um those those elements of this once particularly 
you know mm-hmm. you're becoming less religious uh in reading the freeze uh you know a lot of the uh, well first of all just to like give a little context you know the freeze there's this all of a sudden the entire world mm-hmm. just pauses right for and uh for except for one person ray who decides to go around and and um finds out he can unfreeze these people and in that book uh or in that series you guys sort of touch upon um religion and how that sort of bubbles up from a post-apocalyptic not necessarily post-apocalyptic but from a world where there is sort of this mass change did a lot of that or how much of that was impacted by your own personal transition uh from faith to sure no that's a really good question um and it's funny like i hadn't thought too much about the parallels between the two i think a lot of the kind of religion aspects came from dan wickline who was uh, the creator and and writer of this series so it was really fun for me you know to to draw these things and play with you know visually that idea of 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 oftentimes uncertainty is what brings people to uh to seek for answers and a lot of people do find those answers um in religion and then we were playing with in this, in that story, the dangers of extremism, both in actions and in thought and, and things like that. So, yeah, I, 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 I can't say that too much of it came from my own experience, but yet reading those scripts, I could very much identify with a lot of the things that were happening. And that helped me as an artist to find ways to dig into to tell that story and, and try and connect with what Dan was was writing a little bit more. So that actually brings me to a question I really wanted to yeah, ask, absolutely. which sure. was um, I'm always fascinated by creators who are both artists and writers Mm -hmm. because obviously like comics being a visual medium like there's a lot of heavy lifting on both sides of that equation when it comes to like telling a narrative yeah so how does your process differ when you're working as an artist versus a writer or when you're doing both yeah no that's a really good question um you know working as as an artist with other writers i get the script and i always feel it's my job to see what the writer sees to try and understand what it is that they're thinking of when they're writing these things down. And then not only execute that, but try and elevate the material um, to the next level up. Um, and then as I'm working as a writer, you know, I'm, I'm trying to make sure that as I'm writing something, I'm visualizing and understanding in my head what's happening. Because I think sometimes I'll, you know, I've gotten scripts really early on in my career. Thankfully, it's not happened for a long time, but really early on, I occasionally would get a script. And this isn't even necessarily stuff that was published. Uh, but like I could tell the writer wasn't visually thinking through the things they were writing. Mm. They were writing the moments that they saw, but then I would get them and be like, I, I can tell they don't quite see how this all fits together. So as a writer, I would try really hard to, to, to visualize the whole world so that as I talked about a character walking through a space or people fighting in an alley, I understood what that looked like so that I wasn't asking them to do things that like, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. They can't be here and then all of a sudden over there and then all of a sudden over there. Um, but then as I'm doing it all myself, um, I don't I don't work as linearly. Um, I mean, I write my script and then from script, I go to pencils and then pencils to inks and then inks to colors. But at the same okay. time, as I'm as I'm drawing something, if I find a better way to write it, I'll kind of go back and rewrite it. And as I'm coloring something, if I find a better way to do the art, I'll go back and redraw. There's a little bit more circular aspect to it where I can constantly be tweaking every lever along the way as I'm finding better ways to do it. So it's a little bit more discovery like the the blueprints and the the structure is all the same but it gives me a little bit more um freedom to kind of uh, play loose and fast as i get going so when you are like working on a new like script right from that as a writer what what is like the deciding factor for you whether this is a book that you want to collaborate with another artist on or that you'd rather draw yourself 
That's a really good question. I guess it it's it is it like the the answer is like do I have something as an artist I can bring that will elevate this, or is there another artist who can do a better job? Mm. Um, I've got a pitch that I've had around for a while that I'm like you know I've had a lot of people love it and it, it will get. I will get published for the life of me because it's one of my favorite things I've ever written, but I collaborated with an artist on it and it was really hard to give up drawing it because I had such a fun time writing it and I love the project so much. But the artist I'm working with, I was like, no, he'll do a hundred percent better job than I will. There's just certain strengths that he has that play to this style and genre of a book that I just don't have. And as soon as he turned his pages in, I was like, Oh, that's it. Uh, Yep. That was the right decision. (laughs) He's so much better than I could ever be on this book. So I can see that being a really hard decision to come to though. Like when you do feel really precious about something and like you have that ownership over it and then you're like inviting someone else to come and shape it, you know? Exactly. Yeah. It was, it was a tough one, but I mean, something like the house, which is a book I did with Drew Zucker. Drew came to me with the idea first as an artist and said, I've got an idea, but I don't write. Do you, do you write? And I was like, yeah, I would love to. Um, so we collaborated from the very beginning in those roles, which was helpful because it's, it's a world war two period horror story. Um, but I'm like, I hate drawing period stuff. I hate like all the details of getting clothing right from a bygone era, even though <laughs> bygone's only like 70, 80 years ago. But yeah, I was so happy that he drew that book. Cause I was like, I would just hate to draw like, you know, rivulets on helmets and seams on uh, fatigues and things like that. That's not, <laughs> that's not my strength. So that's cool that you can kind of pick and choose though. And like, just focus on the stuff that you really feel like plays to your strengths and like what you're interested in, in developing. Yeah. Um, so then to take it back to when you're working as an artist on someone else's script, how, you, you said that you felt like it's your job to really like see what they had in mind when they were writing it. How do you balance that desire to like be really true to their initial vision with wanting to like include your own voice as an artist on the page? Yeah, I've been lucky that I've worked with really great and kind of generous collaborators that allow me to kind of go as crazy as I want to go. And that's like, I've had times where I call people up and be like, I know there's five panels on this page, but I've got a cool way to do it in 15. Can I do 15 panels on this page? (laughs) Which is just a bad move, but I do it a lot. Um, So yeah, they've been really cool. But I think, I think earning their trust by trying to see what they trying to execute what they want um, has allowed me the ability to be like, okay, I see you're doing this. There's maybe a cooler way if I do it a little bit differently this way. So I think them seeing that I want to try and uh, execute their vision as much as I can has given me a little bit of, of leeway to to when I need to or when I've come up with ideas that are just slightly different to be like, all right, now we've got this. And what if we did this? It's mainly all the changes I'm doing. It's just trying to take that vision that they've got and, and do it in the best way possible. So every now and then we can come up with ways that are a little bit different than the script, but it's still executing the same idea and the same intention. Yeah. I was going to pivot away from that. I, I had a thought. When you were transitioning vocations, obviously you decided that you want to do comic books mm-hmm. as a career, but obviously that was perhaps an arduous time for you. Um, were there books that were particularly inspiring for you around that time to help really motivate you to transition into this career? Um, that's a good question. I mean, are you talking about comic books that I was reading or just like, you know, how-to books or some, or, or anything? I was thinking comic books, but sure. you could, honestly, anything is fine. Yeah, no, no, it would be comics. I was actually reading a lot of comics at the time because when you have a great corporate job, you can buy like 40 comics a week and, <laughs> and afford it just fine. Um, I'm trying to think. So, like, I, I quit my day job in 2010 
it was in 2009 when I applied to grad school. So there was like a year from deciding we were going to do it before we did it. Um, but I mean, during that time, I was at the, uh, like Planetary was wrapping up. Planetary is one of my all-time favorite comic books. And nice. it came out so slowly, but we were getting right towards the end of that. And anything, I mean, Planetary is absolutely brilliant and a love letter to every type of genre of comic. So that was always super inspiring. Um, that was right in the middle of like the Marvel heyday of Bendis, where we were going, we were bouncing from like House of M to you know Avengers Disassembled, to House of M to Secret Invasion to Civil War was in there somewhere. And though I didn't love a lot of those crossovers, like the actual event books, I loved all the books that went on in the background, like all the tie-ins. Like Bendis executed tie-ins better than anyone in the world. Like the Secret Invasion tie-ins, where he's like, "Let me go back and you know, you know, retcon the last year and a half worth of stories of who was Scrolls and stuff like that," was just mind-blowingly cool. At the same time, on the flip side, you had Jeff Johns doing like his best career-defining work in the DCU with like Green Lantern, and he just you know finished one Flash run and was gearing up for another Flash run and. Um, so you had like all these like, yeah, to me, they're like, you know, defining comics of the era at the were just happening. And it was really exciting. Like I was and I mean, on the X-Men side, you had like Peter David's X-Factor run, which is one of my all time favorite runs. And so there was just lots of like really great comics happening. So those were inspiring me on a regular basis. Um, and I wasn't, you know, working in comics. It's hard to read comics as much as you did previously because there's you know you know what's happening on in the background and you've got to draw your pages and, and things like that so at the time just being almost like a pure fan it was such an exciting time to read comics and i love those books so much so uh you are, oh, you oh. are speaking yeah my language when it comes <laughs> to those books that was that was my favorite time as a comic book reader yeah there's is such there, good stuff is uh, there a character that would like particularly inspire you or drive you around that time or an author or sure. an artist? Yeah, no, no, that's a really good question. I mean, I think around that time especially, I was just dyed in the wool Jeff Johns. Um, I always loved DC Comics growing up, but I didn't read a lot of DC Comics. I always read Marvel stuff um, that connected with me as a reader. But, you know, when I stepped into mid-2000s DC, you've got things like Identity Crisis, which as problematic as it is, there's still things about it that really connected as a reader. But then you come out of that into, like, his, you know, Green Lantern Rebirth, and he's, he launches his Green Lantern run, and then you've got Infinite Crisis, and then you've got 52, and one year later, and then the, uh, you know, the uh, the Yellow Lantern War, or whatever, like, the crossover of that one the was. Sinestro Corps. Sinestro Corps, yes. I have so many of the oversized hardcovers of that era now. Like, I spend ridiculous, stupid money that I shouldn't spend, but I'm like, but there's the omnibus of this, oh. and it's like $150, <laughs> but it looks pretty on my shelf. I think that time, to me, that was like a perfect execution of just these gigantic um, galactic stories that played to the godlike strength of DC characters, but he found ways to connect with the characters kind of on emotional human levels. And I've gone back and read his Flash run, which I think at that time had been finished, but I've read it since and it's brilliant. Like he, the stuff he does with Wally in that run is so darn good. Um, so yeah, like that, like Jeff Johns, Green Lantern, kind of that era of DC is what I really connected with at the time. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. I'm right there with you. <laughs> when I had my corporate job, I also blew 
stupid money on omnibuses. Yes. <laughs> uh, good corporate jobs got to be good for something. So yeah, right. If you're gonna sell your soul, you might as well get to read some comics. Exactly. I may have made the world the worst place for a few years, but I have lots of comics to show for it. So. You're making up for it now. It's all right. Right. <laughs> uh, that actually um, takes me to another question I wanted to ask, which was, you know, you're talking about that period in your life where you're at this job that you're unsatisfied with and mm-hmm. it's like something you've been working towards all these years. What, what was the like thing that made you decide like comics are it? Was that something you had always wanted to do? And you're like, if I'm going to leave the job behind and do something, I might as well go chase the dream. Or was it cause you were reading so much at the time? Um, comics is something I always wanted to do. When I was nine years old, I came across Jim Lee and Chris Claremont's X-Men number one. Um, and I'd already been watching the X-Men animated show. So I loved X-Men. I'd loved X-Men since I was a kid, way before there was even cartoons. Um, and I, so I read that and like, I was, I put the issue down as a nine year old and was like, I'm going to draw comics. That's what I'm going to do. So I spent years just drawing like just scribbles everywhere. And then when I was, I think 15 was the first year I put together a portfolio and I took it to San Diego comic-con in, uh, in way back in the nineties. And for like five or six years in a row, I put together samples and I take it to Comic-Con. And like that was the way you broke in back there, like old school ways. Um, and then, I, you know, because of life and getting older and fear and lots of other things, I stepped away from making comics and decided like, oh, you know, I'll get a, I'll get a business degree and, and stuff like that. Um, but I still read them. So when we, I was at my corporate job and I hated it, I found like I had to have some sort of outlet to kind of normalize things. Um, and I was still always telling stories. I was always writing. So I, I was... At the time, I really wanted to get into Hollywood and do screenwriting because, again, writing is still telling stories to me. Any way I can tell a story is what I want to do. Um, but that was right, like 2007, 2008. The economy collapsed. California was hit super hard. I was like, there's no way in the world I can move to L.A. and be a screenwriter. So I was like, I've got these stories. I was like, I can kind of draw. Like, I, I, I've drawn my whole life. So I, was, I had a friend was like, why don't you just do a webcomic? At the time, I think Warren Ellis and Paul Duffield were doing Freak Angels online. And mm. I was reading that every week. And I was like, I can do that. I mean, obviously, I can't do Warren Ellis, but I can write a story and draw it and put it online. So I started doing a webcomic and I posted like five sequential pages a week for a year and a half straight for a webcomic. And we, wow, it was one big story. It was like 300 some odd pages in the end. That was while I was working 50 to 70 hours a week at the corporate job. And wow, man. Whew. That was like, that was all I did. I I, pen, I wrote, penciled, inked. At, at first I had someone helping me with colors, but within a quick time I took over all the colors and yeah, we never missed a scheduled uh, update. Then I've got, I collected the whole thing and printed it out and I've taken it offline because it's so awful. I don't want anyone to <laughs> read it. Um, but, you know, one of these days I'll, I'll, I'll dig it up out. I, every now and then I'll bring the trade out and show friends and they'll just laugh hysterically at me. But yes. <laughs> is, so, is that where you developed your art style? Um, I, I think that was, that was a step in the right direction. I think what I learned during that webcomic was just how to sit down and get work done um, and how to kind of devote yourself to kind of a single vision and story. Cause before, you know, as a teenager doing samples, I do one or two a year, maybe it was mainly just like gearing up to work um, right before San Diego comic-con. I wasn't consistently doing new samples every four to six weeks. I wasn't mailing them out. I wasn't treating it like a, a job that I wanted to get into. It was a fun hobby. So now coming back as an adult and being through working in corporate environments and, and understanding like how to set goals and get them done, that really taught me how to like buckle down and, and hit a, like a weekly goal and everything. And I think I was still very much stylistically like just a poor imitation of all my favorite artists, a very poor imitation. Um, but it, it got me kind of in a mindset and in a habit and kind of a really nice working ethic. 
Yeah, uh, sorry. I was. I figured. I figured Pete would have something else to <laughs> no, say. No, it's all good. I always um, do, but I wanted to let somebody else talk now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I. I think that one of the one of the most fascinating things about listening to creators speak is sort of that that origin story because comics are the first the furthest thing from a sure bet. Mm-hmm. Like you go to Hollywood and you 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 know you punch up scripts and. You know, there's big money waiting for you on the other side of that, you know, <laughs> if you break in, if you manage it. Yeah. And with comics, it's like, cool, you broke in. Now you're not making the big money uh, and you're still grinding yep. and you have to have this big passion for it mm-hmm. in order to keep up to maybe one day make that kind of money. Yeah. Um, so for you, what what was it? What was the thing that made you comfortable with knowing that your lifestyle was going to have to change with knowing that you were going to have to, you know, switch some things up. Uh, what made you comfortable making such a seismic shift in your life? Sure. You know, I've often, I've told my friends, like, if I could just be happy as an accountant, I would have loved to have just been happy as an accountant. Um, it would have been a much easier, more secure lifestyle. Cause then I could have gone to work, done my nine to five and then gone home and had like my life on the, the nights and weekends and have been fine. I just, I, I, I'm one of those people that unless I'm telling a story, unless I'm doing something that feels meaningful, I just, I can't function. It it was, it was a very difficult time doing something like a, a weekly corporate grind in an environment that I felt like, I I mean, truly, I felt like I was making the world a worse place every day. I was helping manage money of billionaires. And I was like, billionaires don't need more money management. They don't need to be more rich. Um, there's so many people who are out there who, who are, are suffering, um, tangentially to the work I was doing. It felt terrible. So, you know, having, I I couldn't do anything and be happy unless it was creating a story, unless it was telling a story. Um, I was talking to someone earlier this week and we were talking about the impact that stories have and the lessons they can teach us. And I feel to me, that's where you can help someone and help teach people and, and help inspire people to do better. It's much easier to do that in story than like a sermon or than a, a TED talk or something like that. Because story can connect with so many different people on different levels, depending on what they need and what they're searching for. Um, so I'm like, yeah, I, I can't necessarily say that my, my stories will change the world. But there were there were silly stories that I wrote as a kid that had giant impacts on me that I don't think the writers and artists who wrote them were necessarily thinking about an impact. And yet they are things that I still to this day are, are super personal to me because of how they connected to me as like a, a nine-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 15-year-old, a 25-year-old. Um, so I, I, you know, I want to be a small, a small part of that as I can humanly be because like that has changed my life. And I kind of, it's not, it's not necessarily a give back, but it's to be involved. It's, you know, partial giving back and partially just being involved in something like that to, to, again, we spent a couple of years making the world a worse place. Maybe we can spend the rest of my career trying to make it a little bit better. Yeah, that, that, uh, that really speaks to me for sure. Philip, I totally, um, can, can relate to that. Um, that's, a that's like a, a tough thing and you're brave to make that choice, you know, oh, um, thanks. really, really glad to see that it's working out for you so far. <laughs> yes. So, so far, so good. They, they've tried to kick me out a couple times, but I'm still here. So, <laughs> so I guess my follow up question is what are the stories that influenced you as a kid? What were the lessons that you kind of learned from stories? Um, yeah, so I, I'll answer that in a little bit of a different way, but I think it, it ties in. Um, so I've got two little kids. I've got a seven-year-old son and an almost five-year-old daughter. 
And in the past couple of months, we sat down because they'd never watched any of these. We watched all the Marvel movies. Um, oh, wow. We watched them all. We'd watch like one or two a week or sometimes three a week. And then we all went together and saw Endgame in the theater. And at this point, I'd already seen Endgame twice. So this was my third time seeing it, but they had never seen it. Um, and one, I'm like, one, it's super cool that they get to watch all this amazing stuff right in a row. Like I am in my mid thirties, I had to endure years of like Batman and Robin and just awful, <laughs> awful comic book movies and the Nick Fury TV movie and like stuff like that. That that's was like, I love. Um, so we got to watch all those things. Then we went and saw Endgame, and obviously Endgame, I love that movie so much because it's so perfectly a comic yes. book movie. Um, and we were talking just the other day and I don't remember how it came up, but my son turns to me and he says, he says, dad, the best thing you can do in life is sacrifice your life for billions of people. He's like, just like Iron Man did in Endgame. Um, and to me, like, I was like, you're right, buddy. But it also like very much touched me because of all the stories we tell people, the quote unquote greatest stories of all times are like that, like Jesus's story. Like I'm like, it, Tony Stark is this generation's Jesus because both of them are great stories and both of them are about someone who sacrificed their life for the rest of the world. And there's lots of other stories along the way. But I mean, just that impact, I was like, you know, like that's this generation's religion is, is what comic book movies and comic books have become. Um, and I hope that's not too blasphemous or sacrilegious to people, but I'm looking at it from a high level of like these stories we tell ourselves that inspire people to do better. Um, so like, I mean, just that impact of what that taught my son from Endgame, and I, and I've jokingly said the same thing to friends for a few months now, like I need that Tony Stark, like Iron Man hot toy that even though it's like $450, I'm like, you know, I've got to pay homage to our savior, uh, Tony Stark, who saved us from Thanos. <laughs> um, but I'm like, yeah, so that, so I mean, obviously there's, there's lots of stories for as a kid or as growing up, I'm a huge fans of Joss Whedon and Michael Crichton and Stephen King and in. And like, you know, like you said, 90s X-Men comics and like, you know, I can talk about all my creators and things like that. But to me, at a, at a high level, like those are the stories that inspire us to do better um, and to help other people. And, you know, and in, the, in, in big ways or small ways to sacrifice ourselves for people like Tony Stark did in Endgame. So that's so cool. Uh, we, we talk on this show a lot about how comic books, particularly uh, big two superheroes, are the modern day myth. Mm hmm. And it's amazing because they've taken over pop culture yeah. in a lot of ways. And it is it does almost come across, like you said, like a religion. Mm -hmm. And just in the sense that, you know, we're all engaged with this on some level. Like where can yeah. you go in America today where you're gonna find someone who doesn't know anything about Marvel? They don't know one character, they don't have one whether it's the Hulk or Thor, someone that they like, mm -hmm. you know, that their favorite, they can tell you who their favorite is. And what else can you really say that about? Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree. Yeah, we, we did a whole episode recently about that, about like how certain superheroes have shaped us and, and how like it makes sense when certain people have that character that like aligns with their identity or whatever. And it's funny because you, you made the tony stark jesus christ comparison and uh you made the blasphemy joke but i that i make a similar joke where i say that like spider-man was a much greater moral teacher in my life than jesus christ you know yeah, yeah. um because he's relevant to me mm -hmm. exactly. so yeah like i totally uh i yeah i totally get what you're putting out there and i think it's um i think it's why like you know this trend right that we keep calling it like isn't going away right yeah. because we're in a time in our country where it's like you know, I feel like a lot of people feel like they probably need a hero, you know? Very, very much so, yes. They need a leader to look up to or leaders or people that inspire them to to talk about the, the power, the responsibility that comes with power and not the way that power just corrupts, so. 
That's why we need a good Superman movie. But that's beside the <laughs> so point. So badly. <laughs> that's a great um, point. I need to believe that a man can fly again. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, seeing how these characters have kind of shaped your entire life as both a kid and as a parent, mm-hmm. surely as a storyteller, there must be a character or a team that you have a story for. And obviously you don't have to divulge what that would be, but what... <laughs> What character or team or whatever, what, what story do you need to tell a character for? That's a really good question. I mean, I always go back to um, X-Men and Spider-Man are like my two favorite things. Yes! Um, forever. Like they're, <laughs> they're, the, they're my, the loves of my, my fictional life. I mean, on the DC side, obviously, I love um, Batman. I think doing like a hard, fun reboot of Legions of Superheroes would be a blast. Nice. Um, I'm looking forward to what Bendis is doing, but I'm like, yeah. we could be, you could be so different with that book. Um, but I mean, those are, I think, some of the things that come to mind. I don't know if I necessarily have a story I'm sitting on and waiting. I've got a couple ideas. Um, I think it would just depend on kind of what's happening in the book. Um, but I mean, I think I'm just as, if not even more excited to tell my own stories too. So if I can find a way to do both over the point of my career, over the, the length of my career, that would be amazing. Um, so, yeah. So we, we talk to, we talk to a lot of creators and, and one of the things that I, I hear a lot is um, people are frustrated with the dominance of superhero stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, across the medium, but then also spinning out into pop culture, television, movies, all that kind of jazz. Yeah. And you seem to have a softer perspective on superheroes. Yeah. Where Where do you fall on that on that sort of line? A lot of creators will say, "Just do your own stuff. Don't do superhero stories." Yeah. Uh, where do you fall in that spectrum? Um, you know, I, as we've talked about, it's it's very obvious that superhero stories have meant a lot to me, uh, and I don't have a problem with their predominance in the industry but i very much am of the opinion that for in order for comics to evolve and continue to grow we need to continue to push outside of the superhero genre yeah Um, i think i think more than anything right now i buy and read more image comics and more you know um more non-big two publishers absolutely love superheroes i love big two i find i go in in cycles where at times i love a ton of stuff they're doing and at times they don't quite connect with me um, and that's fine. That doesn't mean there's not great stories being put out there. Um, but I think, you know, we need to continue to push the boundaries of what comics are. There's a there's a phenomenal documentary called um, She Makes Comics. Um, and it's about kind of the, the history of female creators in comics. And in there, I'm paraphrasing, but Kelly Sue DeConnick is um, kind of uh, ends it with this idea of like, you don't hear people say, oh, movies are not for me or oh, books aren't for me. The same way you hear people say, oh, comics are not for me. She's like, comics are not a genre. Comics are a medium. Inside comics, there is every type of story that is being told. And inside all those stories, there's something for everyone. Um, and I think we need to continue to push what the, the, the public's perception of what comics are and what they can be by, by pushing for um, diversity of stories, diversity of content, diversity of creators, um, what what that does is it expands the pie. Like, we don't necessarily have to get rid of Batman in, in favor of Lumberjanes. But by bringing Lumberjanes in, you bring in people into comics who wouldn't be in comics in the first place. You're not taking away, you're adding to the overall size of the industry. So I think pushing that will help evolve us, will make us stronger. You look at stuff like Raina Telgemeier, Raina rules comics, and yet in your, your big two Wednesday Warriors have never picked up Smile or sisters or anything else like that, but they've sold millions and millions of copies. So I think we need to continue to push for more, but we also need to realize like comics are so much bigger than what we typically think of as comics. 
Um, like just the, the, the middle school graphic novel type stuff is insane. I love go taking my son to book fairs at his elementary school and finding the graphic novel table and, and seeing stuff like Plants vs. Zombies and everything by Raina Telgemeier and Faith Aaron Hicks and all sorts of really cool books that I wouldn't necessarily see in my comic book shop every week. And I'm like, this is how comics will survive is finding different stories and different outlets and, and not getting rid of stuff, but adding to it. I think that's so fascinating because comics really are fighting a stigma that has existed for a very, very long time. Yes. There are so many people that I've come across in life who don't want to read comics. Mm-hmm. They have a they have an aversion to it because they assume it's for kids yeah. or it's stupid. Mm-hmm. Right? And we're we're fighting that now. Yeah. You know, every every book that comes out is a is a stance against that perspective. Mm-hmm. And Marco tells a great story, uh, and you can elaborate on it on it if you want to, Marco, about how culturally comics comics may as well not exist. Y- speak to that, Marco. You mean with respect to it, just like superheroes as well? A, you as you've said before that like. You were you were you grew up thinking comic books were trash and that, y- yeah. Oh oh, so like um, yes, being uh, that was largely something that like my parents would um, put on coming from like a Spanish household. You know, it was like lesser art. It was something to to drive my attention away from what I should be focusing on in in life and and things like that. And um, I ended up finding it only after I had grown up, right? Like I, I would read, you know, things here and there. Um, uh, I like Legos, so they would have like Bonacle comics and stuff. You know, I, I understood what it was. I understood the medium, but there was a point where I approached it and like actually started to consume the the stories, consume the art and and realize that it, it stood very much to you, what you were saying, where it, it stood higher than what it was and it was trying to elevate something. It was trying to elevate an art. And that's like everything that I've, everything you said is something that I personally on the show uh, subscribe to. Like, I'm not the superhero guy, you know, because I didn't read uh, read it as a kid. Those weren't the first books I, I, I went to. Right? I read like, you know, the Batmans and the yeah. the the intro stuff. But really my, my passion comes in mm-hmm in the form of indie comics and, and, you know, like the people who are pushing those boundaries and it's where I, you know, I, I found you with the, with the house. It was a Kickstarter book. You know, it wasn't one of those big two things. It was mm-hmm. horror on top of that. So, you know, that's my jam. And it's something that I think the comic, the comics community needs to be behind in order to continue to elevate comics and the medium, because to what, exactly what you said, it's at a point where, um, and this is actually something that uh, what is it? Mike, Brian Michael Bendis had said in one of his like powers books is like you know the superhero genre isn't a genre; it's the medium, and that's the confusion that a lot of people have is that we treat superheroes as the as the medium versus as a slip yeah. or genre of it. So a hundred percent. So, is there a thing that you feel as a community? So from the fan perspective, but also from the creator end Uh that we can be doing, and even the corporate end, to be honest, that we can be doing to change the narrative. That's a really good question. And I think um, there's some good friends of mine who, who, who um, push this 
when they talk in public or when they do a podcast. And I think this is probably good as, as fans and, and to a degree, this works as creators too, but as fans like vote with your dollars. Um, if you, if you love a book, buy it, buy it for your friends, buy it for your family, push it, get the word out. If you don't love a book, don't keep buying it because it's your habit. Um, I think that will help send a message to kind of the corporate end of comics. Um, Cause I mean, as much as, as to us, comics is an art form and comics is our means of expression in, in our community um, from a very high level up with Warner Brothers and Disney. Like, are they making money? Are they helping them, you know, at the bottom line? So if they tell a story that you don't like, don't buy it um, because that will help them understand like, oh, this is not connecting. Um, if there's a book out there that you love, buy the hell out of that book um, because that will send us a, a flare up somewhere of like, ooh, a book like this is working really well. Like something like, um, Nick Spencer and Steve Lieber's The Fix is one of the most brilliant, hilarious crime comics ever made. And I don't know if enough people are, are out there talking about it. Um, but it, yeah, it's so good. But I mean, I, I'm sure there are tons of people out there who are buying Nick Spencer's Spider-Man. Uh, and that's not to say it's not a good book, but at the same time, like if you, if you love what he's doing with The Fix, like promote the hell out of The Fix. Um, if you don't love what he's doing with Spider-Man, don't buy Spider-Man. But if you do love it, buy it. You know, it's one of those uh, signal with your habits. There's, I think, um, um, a habitual, um, pro- I don't know, problem's the wrong word, but kind of pattern with, with comics readers, especially like your Wednesday Warriors, of which I am. I don't use that as a derogatory term. Um, but like you, you get into a habit where you're like, I buy X-Men every month. And I buy X-Men whether I like it or whether I don't like it. Like I will own every issue of X-Men or I will own every issue of of Spawn or Walking Dead, not anymore, rest in peace, Walking Dead. But, um, you know, if there's a book out there that you're buying out of habit, stop for a second and be like, am I buying this because I love this book or am I buying it because I always buy this book? Um, And I think, you know, that that will help clarify and send the message about what what books you love and what books you don't talk about what you love. Don't 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 piss on what you don't like. We don't need more negativity in comics. We've got plenty of that. Absolutely not. Talk about what you love, buy what you love, spread the word that way. That's what I try to do. Like I, 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 there was, um, I think it was Jen Bartell was talking on a podcast, uh, earlier this year where she's like, she says she tries to ratio her tweets, like 10 positive tweets for one negative tweet. She was like, you know, I have to build up kind of a well of positivity before I'll send something out. That's like, you know, either something happening in the world that's bad or something she's frustrated about as an artist. And it really stopped and made me take stock of like, what am I saying on social media, especially Twitter, because it's really easy to retweet stuff you're angry about. Um, and I'll be like, am I am I making sure that I'm spreading positivity in my interactions? Because um, that will help the industry as well. You want people, people are attracted to positivity. So if you are tweeting about all the stuff that you love, people will be like, oh, this is really cool. And this is exciting. If you're just endlessly tweeting about what you don't like everyone's just going to be grouchy and angry as well so i don't know there's there's such a it's like such a multifaceted question but that might be at least the first place to start is support what you love don't support what you don't like but spend your energy on like the good things yeah i i think that is a great baseline and it's it's something it's something that f- often frustrates me as a as a reader and someone who's involved on an ancillary level where, you know, we talk about the news all the time and there are books that, you know, people talk about and they seem excited for. And for example, it might be a, a book that features a person of color, right? Yeah. And it's a, let's say it's a, let's say it's a Marvel book, for example. Mm-hmm. And 
whether it's good or not is immaterial to the point that I'm trying to make where you can see all the conversation around the book on the internet. Like, oh, this is, I love this character, I love this design, whatever it is. But then that doesn't appear to reflect the sales. Yeah. And it frustrates me because the commentary around the industry is, well, superheroes are bad or superheroes are holding the industry back or whatever. Mm-hmm. But then when the, when the big two try to do something different, we don't support that. Yeah, yeah, I think a lot of comic readers, like I said, are a little bit readers of habit. And that doesn't mean they don't love comics and don't enjoy it. I just think sometimes having something new and different is it falls outside of what they're used to. And right. it doesn't fit into their their habits and patterns. So, by yeah, but I think, you know, as creators, it's our job to push a diversity of content and a diversity of characters to bring in those new readers and to bring in those new voices that will help, you know, that will support those ideas and help balance out those people who are not as interested in those uh, different takes or, or things that are outside of their regular. And it's, it's, yeah, it's tough if no one's supporting a book to keep it going. But I think um, we that there's a responsibility in all things that we do to make books that are reflective of the world around us and, and, and help encourage the positive aspects of this world and push that, that, uh, that narrative forward, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. I think, um, one of the points that you made that really stuck out to me is like that idea of like, not just habitually buying things. Cause that was really what I think if I had kept buying comics that way, I wouldn't read comics anymore. Cause yeah. I, I hit a point where I was like, you know, I think much like you where I was always a Marvel guy growing up and mm-hmm. Spider-Man and X-Men were what I liked and I wanted to read those things. And even when books I was following were going to places I wasn't enjoying anymore, I was still reading them yeah, and complaining about them. <laughs> and eventually I hit a point where I was like, okay, well, I like, I like this writer, right? Yeah. Or I like this artist. Why don't I go see what they're doing? Not what is Spider-Man doing this month? It's like, what is this person working on? And exactly. trying to follow the creator's whose voices align with yours or that, you know, speak to you as a, uh, you know, as a, as a fan and like just trying to seek out that stuff. Cause that's really what, where you're going to get the most bang for your buck. I think. Mm-hmm. No, hundred percent agree. Uh, I could talk about this all day because <laughs> even that is so, it, it becomes so complex, right? Like putting yourself in the, in the mind of a fresh reader, you know, someone who's inspired by Endgame, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, whether you're a young kid or maybe a teen mm-hmm. or, or even an adult and you go to the store and you say, oh, you know, I loved how Iron Man, you know, what he sacrificed, what should I buy? And yeah. you walk in and they tell you, hey, uh, you could pick up the latest Iron Man or you could pick up Demon in a Bottle or whatever, you know, whatever it is yeah. and you buy it and you're like, cool, I want more. You don't necessarily know to follow the writer or even the artist you got it through Iron Man. Yeah. So it's such a it's such a a process. And unfortunately, comics are unique in the sense that they're kind of the only medium that has that process, at least that I can think of, because you you so often associate the work of a film or a television show with the creator. So like yeah. if you're listening to music, you associate the music with a specific person or 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 group that put that music together. Mm-hmm. Um and because comics are so dominated by IP, mm-hmm. you don't think that way. Yeah. yeah. So it's yeah. so so different and, and complex. I, I literally it's hard to think, guide new readers. I think yeah. big two superhero comics are probably the least accessible thing you could try <laughs> to get into. You know? Yeah. Like it's Very really like so. you have to do like a lot of homework to understand context to just jump on. And it's like that's yeah. that's a tall order. Cause I remember being that kid. I remember like 
I read comics growing up. I had fallen out of them as like a preteen. I went and saw Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy and was like, I want to get back into comics. And then read Spider-Man's entire Wikipedia page before I read a book. <laughs> so I could be like, okay, I get it now. You know, and it's like, that's not, that's a barrier of entry, you know? Yeah, and I think the other part of the, this discussion, which is very key, is retailers, um, which is hard for any of us to speak unless, I don't know, unless someone works at a retail shop. But like great retailers are who will help your your new person walk in, in the door. I've got some phenomenal retailers around us that I've done either just hanging out in shops or doing signings. I'll watch people walk in and they'll be like, hey, you know, what can I help you with? And they'll be like, I'm looking for this. And they'll be, oh, you need this or this or that or this or other people. And like, hey, I know you love this book. Buy this book. And I've just watched the hand selling that happens for when retailers interact and know their customers really well. Um, and that's one thing that we can talk about forever, but in the end, like that's, you know, that good retailers do an amazing job and that there are some retailers who maybe aren't as amazing, but if, if everyone could step it up a notch, like that will help a lot of those kids yeah. or teens or adults coming in be like, man, Endgame was awesome. What should I read? And then they can help them either with character or, 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 or title or creator or things like that. Yeah. That's such a shitty thing too, that like, it can really be such a, a gamble. Cause like, you know, I like grew up in uh, in New Jersey, and there's a, a a lot of comic book stores there because a lot of people live there. And yep. I've had my my fair share of experiences where you go to a store and it's a great experience, or where yep. it's a really awful experience. Yep. And for me, I'm initiated. Like I know what I'm looking for. So if someone's rude to me, it's like whatever. Fuck you. I know what I want. But exactly. if you're that person who saw Endgame and is inspired to go check out a comic, and then someone's mean to you. And like, you know, kind of brushes you off because you don't know what you're talking about. Like that'll yeah. turn you off in the same way that going in and being confused will, you know, yeah. whereas if you do have that, that person who is passionate and friendly and is like, yeah, like, let me help you find something that will get you excited. It makes all the difference in the world for sure. Oh, no, very much so. The, the retailer element that you brought up is so huge. And I think it's, it's probably the thing that we discussed the least mm -hmm. in terms of, so obviously we're outside the industry, so we don't have a relationship with retailers and fans. Obviously, you know, you have a relationship with a retailer you go to, but the bigger picture of that, I think, is something that really matters a lot. And um, I, I don't experience it because I live in New York. And so my local shop is Midtown Comics, which is Walmart, right? Yeah. For comics. <laughs> I so, love Midtown. <laughs> <laughs> I, me too. It's the greatest store on earth. Um, but – People who go there typically know what they want mm -hmm. or they're a tourist coming to Midtown for the spectacle yeah. of it or whatever it is. Yeah. And it's it's a lot different. So I'm, I'm isolated from that experience. But uh, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that that does matter a lot as oh, well. Oh, yeah. It's so big, so huge. And I think that's one of the issues with comics being such a niche industry is typically for your floppies, your direct market books, you're only going to find them in comic stores. And you've got to search to find comic stores a lot of the time um, and then – yeah, then it's a it's a gamble whether you're going to be in a great store or a store that could maybe you know you know, step it up a notch or two and you know open some windows and, and sweep some floors type stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, and there's such a big difference too, where it was like my favorite shop closed down actually pretty recently, and they were like in, had incredible amounts of back issues for mm -hmm. like any obscure book run whatever that you've ever heard of, and yep. there are so many stores that like just have what's new. You know, and like that is even like can be a, a big thing. So it, it is a really complex issue. It's how we've been able to do over 140 episodes talking about it. <laughs> yep. So I, I don't want to end the conversation in a down place because I don't think I, as 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 much as we've talked about 
the problems within comics. I personally don't have a negative outlook on the industry. Very much so, yeah. Actually, yeah, yeah, I have a I have a very positive outlook. I feel like things are trending the way they need to be. Mm -hmm. And so um, the message that I want to put out and and leave my part of this conversation with is buy what you love, buy support the creators who you are a fan of, support what's what seems cool to you. If you're in a store and you see you know, a Philip Sevy book and you've never read him before and it's a number one and you're like, oh, what is this? What is triage? You know, pick it up. Yeah. Give it a chance. You never know. Yeah, totally. You know, and if you, if, if, if it's, I mean, not a Philip Sevy book because you would never hate a Philip Sevy book, <laughs> but if you dislike the book that you picked up, that's okay because that was $3 of your money yeah. and obviously that could be a lot of money to you and if it is, you do what you have to do. But if you have the money, and you can even do it once a month. Try a new book. Yeah, for sure. There's that a, can make all the difference. I think this summer has been really cool in that there's a lot of new books that are starting to do yeah. really well. You've got books like Canto from IDW or Road of Bones from IDW. You've got um, Frank Gogol is it released a new book called Dead End Kids through Sourcepoint Press just came out. Such a good book. Oh, yeah. Um, Aubrey Sitterson's uh, No One yep. Left to Fight. Like, There's lots of like new, exciting creator-owned books happening this summer outside of like Jonathan Hickman's House of X, which I loved and it blew my mind. So, I mean, like, there's such brilliance across the entire board. So, if you find something, yeah, if you love it, tell a friend about it. Tell them to go pick it up. That's how the word gets out. Speaking of which, the message I want to leave people with is go pre-order triage. Yes, thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Diamond order code JUL190368. <laughs> yep, September 4th, 2019. <laughs> there you go. Um, yeah, so I want to make sure that everyone goes and picks up the books. Philip Sevy, uh, tell us where everyone can find you on the internet, your, you know, your Twitter, your website, all that jazz. Sure. So, uh, my website is just, uh, philipsevy.com. Um, I am Twitter is at Philip Sevy. Facebook is Philip Sevy comic art. Instagram is Philip Sevy comic art. So, those my website has like links to all socials and stuff like that. So I'll be at Rose City Comic Con in Portland in September, and then good old New York Comic Con in October. Those are my two appearances that I've got scheduled for the year here. Awesome, we'll see you there. Yeah, hey, hey we'll see you there. It. Yeah, so thank you so much for joining us again. Go pick up the books, uh, triage in stores really, really soon. Really soon, uh, and then <laughs> yeah, uh, that just just pick it up, support it. Um, and again, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, and hopefully we can do this again really soon. Oh, no, thank you guys so much for having me on. I appreciate it. I'd love to do it again. Awesome. And actually, before you before you leave, sure. do you know when um, the freeze might be coming back? Um, that's a really good question. Um, I've had We've had lots of conversations and discussions. We don't have a final word on that quite yet. Um, that's kind of a, a decision that's in Top Cow's court right now. Um, so it. we're just, we're just waiting to hear. Cause yeah, like we've got more stories to tell on that book. So we would, awesome. we would like to come back as soon as we can on that. So maybe we can alternate uh, a triage and a freeze or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. That would be great. Well, if, if, and when that book does come back, we need to have you on because we didn't even really get to address that. And I I'm loving that book. Oh, so. thank you. Yeah, no, I would love to come back and talk more about it for sure. Yeah, Absolutely. All right, so that's our interview with Philip Sevy. Again, thank you so much, and thank you guys for listening. Uh, go ahead and check out the regular edition of the Comics Pals, which is up right now, and also our House of X review, which is up right now. So go check out all that good stuff, and uh, we'll see you guys next time. See you next time.
resolve our differences in New York. There will be one Phil left. <laughs> there can only be one. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, I'm siding with Sevi. Like, I'm taking you out, bro. Damn. Maybe we could join forces and become like Phil Squared, though. Ooh. No, dude, no. He's gonna he's gonna bring your oh. stock down. <laughs> <laughs>